0: My name is Sherry Guess, and this is the Heavily Metaled Podcast. On this podcast, I interview patients, medical professionals, and industry insiders, having important discussions regarding the all too commonly experienced but lesser identified symptoms of hypersensitivity to metals contained in implanted medical and dental hardware, diet, and environments. These metals often cause a variety of dysfunctional immune responses, chronic pain, and other syndromes that fly under the radar of most patients and physicians. During these interviews, the patients and I discuss ideas for managing symptoms, share personal lifestyle modifications, and to talk about how to advocate with and educate providers pre- and post-surgery, along with options found for implant removal and the how-to of adverse event reporting. This podcast does not give medical advice. From time to time, I may interview medical professionals that render personal opinions you can use to follow up with your individual provider. Let's roll. Hello, metalheads, and welcome to the jungle. Thanks for coming back for this episode of the Heavily Metal podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Julio Navoa. From El Paso, Texas. He's an OB/GYN and a gynecologist who is a tremendous patient advocate for patients with Asia syndrome, which we're going to talk about in a minute, and mental hypersensitivity reactions, women's healthcare. Dr. Navoa, you are just gold. We are super excited to have you <laughs> with us today. Thanks for coming Thank on. Thank you.
1: Thank you um, for having I'm me. I'm going
0: to let you go ahead and tell us about. All the things, Dr. Navoa. Why don't you give us a little bit of your background, your family, your hobbies, surgical specialties? Tell us who you are.
1: I am an OBGYN. I graduated from Greater Baltimore Medical Center in Baltimore, Maryland. Where I also grew up there, and my dad also graduated from that program. GBMC is now part of Johns Hopkins, which is a prestigious program. I missed out on that graduating class by a year, the year after I graduated that joined with Johns Hopkins. I wanted to be an OBGYN basically because my dad was an OBGYN. He retired coming on 10 years now, but I basically idolized him as far as his intelligence and the specialty. And really, when we look at OBGYN, I'm looking more so at the obstetrics portion because if you understand, that obstetrics is one of the few practices of the medical specialties where people look forward to going to the hospital. It's one of the joyous times. You're not really looking to go to see somebody that's ill or been in an accident or has to have some major surgery. People are going to the hospital to see babies being born. And everybody's happy about babies. So I kind of fixed on that part of obstetrics and gynecology. Yes, of course, I like uh, the surgical portion of gynecology, but that was my main emphasis in my practice. And it still has, uh, to this day, been the emphasis of my obstetrical practice. I'm also a cosmetic surgeon. Uh, When I was in training with my dad and with other OBGYNs, I I was very interested in cosmetic vaginal surgery. And that at the time when I was training was taboo. OBGYNs did not do cosmetic surgery. Since that time, everybody's kind of in it. I could tell you stories of how that transitioned. But nevertheless, I got into cosmetic oncology. And then from there, more into awake procedures, which are the safest way to do cosmetic surgeries when the patient is awake. And therefore, I do the routine Botox fillers and the such. I also do liposuction, chin liposuction, which is a very popular uh, procedure. And then, of course, breast augmentations, liposuction, tummy tucks, fat transfer, Brazilian butt lifts. All of these things are done as awake procedures where my colleagues that are plastic surgeons uh, only do them under general anesthesia. And so I'm kind of like a hybrid of those two types of uh, specialties. My emphasis on the OBGYN as well as cosmetic has always been safety, and that's where I moved it in the front for women's advocacy was related to that particular concern, women's safety and their care. Because I saw and still see today that there's a disparity between the ethical Treatment of women and men, but my specialties have to do more with women, so I have to uh, want to address that m- mostly. But the disparity between the efficacy of medical practices and also the actual business associated portion of medical practices, because they do go hand in hand. Unfortunately, we're on the wrong side of it many times, where we treat medicine as a business, and that's where I started seeing the issues with. In obstetrics, for example, unnecessary cesarean sections, unnecessary tubal ligations, where women were being told that they needed a cesarean section, and then after a certain number of cesarean sections, they shouldn't or couldn't have children anymore and therefore lack of informed consent for sterilization, to ligations, and such. That's how I got into my emphasis of care with Eshore Permanent Sterilization Device and Felsi Clips and Holka Clips and all of the risks associated with those. Move a little bit out from there. The exposures to these particular products had me interested in the metallic hypersensitivity reactions of these particular products and similar biological implants that caused foreign body reactions. So once you open up that door, you basically have opened up the entire gambit of everything to do with Asia effect, which we can talk about a little bit later. On the GYN side, of course, unnecessary tubal ligations, the inappropriate use of permanent sterilization device, unnecessary or improper use of meshes for the vaginal surgeries or urethral surgeries for incontinence rectal surgeries, and the terrible complications associated with the use of mesh. That's a separate category under Asia Effect as compared to the metallic hypersensitivity, but it's still a problem. And then we could simply switch over to cosmetic surgery, where the big one is breast augmentation surgery and the use of implants and the breast implant illness as under the umbrella of Asia as well. Also, the lymphomas associated with a particular type of breast implants that are no longer on the market, but caused a great deal of concern during the period of time. Now, again, we could talk for hours related to non-toxic lymphoma and the use of textured implants. But the key to that was that, and still today, breast augmentation is a major moneymaker for surgeons. And therefore, for the longest time, they downplayed the complications associated with breast implants and cancer of lymphoma. We can downplay the use of meshes and vaginal surgery, as well as downplay their complications related to hernia surgery, for example. Doctors are still using meshes for urethral surgery and causing catastrophic problems for women. Because of course women trust their doctors. They did take Eshore off the market, but women are still having problems with that. And of course, felshe clips or Holcoclips clips or the metallic devices that are used on fallopian tubes. They don't work very well. They fall off, they migrate, they cause foreign body reactions uh, related to that. Or if you want to talk about post-tubal ligation syndrome, there is a syndrome associated with ligation of tubes. As doctors, we should be addressing and offering the best options related, for example, sterilization. And vasectomy actually is the best option available to a couple. And yet, as an OBGYN, I'm ethically obligated to tell patients, hey, listen, is there any chance that your husband or boyfriend, significant other will get a vasectomy? Rather than, hey, you're interested in a tubal ligation, let's talk about tubal ligation. You're supposed to promote the best option available. Vasectomy. Question. Yes.
0: Are there clips used in vasectomies as well?
1: Yes, there's some. I-, I
0: thought so. I also yeah. wanted to interject on clips used in sexual reconstruction and stuff like that. There's a whole other realm out there that I'm not even familiar with and I'm going to get familiar with which is all the people that are gender transitioning are apparently having mm-hmm. huge trouble with their sex reassignment surgeries with clips and foreign body reactions. So that's a whole other we, bunch of people right there.
1: We have to understand that although we have medical doctorates, our level of education is higher than average when it comes to foreign body reactions and complications related to products that are placed on the market by the, and approved by the FDA were really naive or don't want to really look at what the potential complications for that could be. Common sense, I'm not a urologist, I'm a gynecologist, but I've had a vasectomy and I've had it reversed. So as an informed patient, I looked at my options related to vasectomy. And I, as a patient, not even saying that I'm a doctor, as a patient, I would never allow someone to place a clip on any part of my anatomy, especially down in such a sensitive area. And that's the key because here is a one-sided type of management. Doctors, regardless of their specialties, know how to put something in, but rarely know how to take it out. That's why Mm -hmm. you see patients that are suffering from these foreign body reactions with these clips, surgical clips, sterilization clips, that are more than happy to put them in and then – Basically, lie to a patient about being able to take them out. They can take them out. They are just not comfortable taking them out. And if you're not comfortable doing something, either learn how to do it or refer them to someone that can do it. The best thing to do is to learn how to do it. If you put a clip in, learn how to take it out. But again, here is where you're talking about the competition related to medical specialties. You are an elite doctor, an elite surgeon, when you can put something in and take something out. You are just an average doctor when you can put something in but not be able to take it out. And that's how it got so popular because doctors that were under-trained and under-skilled were able to enter the surgical specialties, putting these not complicated to put in, but potentially complicated surgery issues to follow. And then they basically wash their hands of it because they didn't know how to fix the problems that they were causing. And you can see across the board in a significant number of specialties. But since I'm focusing in on OBGYN and cosmetic surgery, I address those. But I see plenty of patients, couples that come to me and they ask me about options related to the I do do uh, transgender surgery, but only breast augmentations, for example. I don't do the more complicated transgender surgeries, but I am empathetic and I do understand that to be a well-rounded, good doctor, you basically have to open up the books all the time outside of your specialty. So I can appreciate what these patients are having to deal with now, but it's basically because of the ineptness and ignorance and yet the God complex of many doctors that think that, oh, I only have to worry about putting them in and not worry about taking them out. That's where we're running into the problems now.
0: Do you use clips in your gynecology practice and do you remove them?
1: No, I've never placed East Shore. I've never placed Adiana, which is another form similar to East Shore. I've never placed Felshi clips. I don't use surgical clips. Now in my specialty, I'm confined in removing clips that are located in the pelvic area. So I can remove pelvic clips. I can remove Felshi clips, Holka clips, and I do eShore removals removals. But I do it in my concept of East Shore is to remove everything that eshore touches. So I... Have a difference of opinion with my colleagues that retain the, the uterus to retain the fallopian tubes. I take mm-hmm. everything out. That I feel is the best way to do it. Again, there's a difference of opinion, but I basically am backing it up based on my experience of almost seven years now on removing eShore and also communicating with other experts that remove eShore, not just the average doctor that basically maybe put in two or three eShores and then it says, Oh, I'll take it out, but I'm going to pull them out. And that's a no-no from the get-go
0: ouch since we're going to talk a lot about not only foreign body like metal hypersensitivity i want to explain what asia syndrome is because there is a chronic immune symptom picture with both metal hypersensitivity and asia syndrome and metal hypersensitive patients may have both can you touch a little bit on what asia syndrome is so that when we're talking about all these foreign body reactions we have a concept of both sensitivity and asia
1: the easiest way to understand asia is it was a diagnosis that was first published in 2011 by Dr. Schinfeld and his associates out of Israel. And he is an immunologist. So basically, he was addressing the complications associated with the use of vaccinations, as well as the Israeli army and the Gulf War that occurred and complications related to side effects from exposure to them. So if you understand that Asia, which is auto-inflammatory autoimmune, or you can reverse it and say autoimmune, autoinflammatory syndrome induced by adjuvants. If you understand what the the acronym stands for, then let's address what adjuvants means, okay, first, because most people say, well, what's an adjuvant? Adjuvant is something that will stimulate an immune response. So for example, in vaccinations, they use aluminum as an adjuvant. And we don't really understand that well of how aluminum stimulates a foreign body reaction or an immune reaction. Now, you can have foreign body reaction and immune reaction. They're the same. It's just how your body responds to it. Will it accept it and stimulate a positive effect? We would say that that's an immune reaction. And then you're saying, well, if many people address it as a foreign body reaction, oh, that's a bad effect because it's acting like An insult to the system. But the body really can't tell the difference between addressing it on a cellular level when it's exposed to something new, whether or not it's going to be a positive thing for the body or a negative thing for a body. It just treats it as all different, all foreign. And that's how it works on that level. So an adjuvant can be aluminum, but an adjuvant stimulating an immune response can be anything that's foreign to the body. What could be an adjuvant? A new exposure to the cold, the flu, chickenpox, okay, herpes, HPV. Those are biological adjuvants. But you can have adjuvants such as pollen or metals, uh, light, heavy metals, for example. Exposure to all of those things can be adjuvants as well, because it just is how the body responds to it. Something that stimulates a immune response is an adjuvant. We like to use things that are positive, but the body will respond differently for each one and maybe exaggerate the response. Where you expect a very minor immune response, you may have an exaggerated response to that adjuvant, and that's often described as hypersensitivity. So if you want to look at Asia as the umbrella, when the body's exposed to something new, it usually is going to be an immune response to it, but then it can cause an inflammatory reaction, such as something simple to easy for, for everyone to understand. If you have been exposed to something that produces a rash, for example, the body is an exaggerating response to that because it recognizes that it's a foreign body. But rather than simply be exposed and Correct for it, it has an exaggerated effect that causes the rash or something to that affect. Or if you are an allergic to something, that stimulus, that adjuvant it was an exaggerated response to it. And that's the hypersensitivity that we talk about. So if you can understand Asia's the big umbrella, then basically everything else falls under it. Metallic hypersensitivity is an adjuvant under Asia. So it's all similar if you're talking about all of the autoimmune diseases, for example, if you're talking about thyroid conditions, if you're talking about lupus, if you're talking about Sjogren's syndrome, even diabetes, for example, the body acts on itself, its own cells. And that's where the cause autoimmune on yourself. I would consider it to be under Asian Now, Dr. Schoenfeld and his colleagues isolated it to three or four different categories, but it's easiest for most of us to understand that Asia is pretty much the umbrella for everything. And if you understand it there, then you can see the links and the similarities to everything else. For example, when I describe Asia to my patients who have issues with or concerns about their breast implants, for example, I say, breast implant illness is under Asia as a foreign body reaction to biological implants. That's what it is. If you understand it there, oh, well then the symptoms that I'm having with my breast implants, which are causing me to have brain fog, are similar to the symptoms that this other person is having from her clips or her Shore, which is brain fog as well. Or if you notice, if you've ever talked to people that are concerned about vaccinations, And after getting a vaccination, the patient starts to feel malaise, fatigue, and also develops symptoms of brain fog, which was common in COVID-19 vaccinations. Patients were concerned because they were having these side effects to the vaccination. Or myocarditis, which was something that was seen in children. This is a response to the vaccination that's understood and in many cases expected, But the fact of the matter is the body responds differently to the foreign body reactions because of the insult. And although we think that the vaccination is something positive, the body treats it as if it's an insult and therefore tries to treat for it.
0: Do you think everybody that has metal hypersensitivity reactions has Asia syndrome?
1: Metal hypersensitivity, is it acute, which will self-correct, for example? If you have a nickel allergy, which is 17% of the population is allergic to nickel, you may not even be allergic to nickel when you're first exposed to it. That's where you wear your fake jewelry and you're doing fine. A few weeks, a few months, a few years later, all of a sudden you start to develop a rash from putting on your costume jewelry. And then that rash is a hypersensitivity reaction, the adjuvant in that particular scenario. If you take off the nickel bracelet or nickel whatever you have. Your body recovers from that. The insult is gone. The adjuvant is gone. And that's not ASIA. ASIA is the chronic exposure, the chronic symptoms associated with the hypersensitivity. So for example, you can have ASIA and breast implant illness. You remove the implants, you remove the adjuvant, you remove the insult and asia disappears.
0: Let's take my case. I've got a ton of metal mm-hmm. hardware. I've had five surgeries to remove a bunch. I still have a bunch in me. I'm still reactive. I mm-hmm. likely will be forever. So that would fall under the umbrella of asia most likely.
1: Yes, because what's happening there is when you're exposed to the adjuvant, you will have a acute response to it. And if the adjuvant is still there causing the same stimulation, you will over time develop a chronic reaction to that insult. So, for example, if you have fels clips or you have some metal in you, you have to remove all of the metal on a microscopic level to be able to get rid of the inflammatory response, the foreign body reaction, because the body will respond Intuitively, you understand that if you have a big piece of metal, they're replacing a bone, for example, with a metal or something in your back of a vertebral device, that's a big piece of metal. So it's more likely than not, because it's larger, to have more surface area to cause more of a stimulation as compared to this tiny little surgical clip, for example. Yes. But intuitively, you think that, oh, but then the doctors, again, Confused because we're not really that smart on this particular subject. That little piece of metal is not going to harm you. It's not going to cause you any problems. They have no understanding. (laughs) It's never inert. That's the problem. It's never inert. Titanium, nickel, all of the other metals will oxidize over time. And as they oxidize on a microscopic level, they change each different manipulation of that particular fragment, whether or not its surface changes or its uh, metallic component changes, that is a trigger for another response of the body as a foreign body reaction. So that's what we're talking about there.
0: I think it's important to point out too, it's not like, oh, my body's a bad body. The body's intelligent and the body is trained It's doing what it was supposed to do. It's like, hey, this isn't supposed to be there. Let's break it down and get rid of it to protect my human.
1: Not only that, not only is your body responding in a natural way, because even an exaggerated response is the way the body's responding naturally. But number two, many foreign body implants, biological implants that we're placing have an intentional desire from the doctor that's putting it in there to induce a foreign body reaction. For mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. the implants or felsiclips, clips, they were designed to cause an inflammatory reaction to the tissue that they're compressing or expanding on. The scar tissue that forms around that is a foreign body reaction that you're expecting, you're desiring that to, to, for it to occur. Now, right. up to a certain point, and here's where doctors were naive, and the creators of EShore were naive, and we'll talk about Felshi clips next or surgical clips next. Is I even spoke to one of the vice presidents, of bear related to this particular subject on eShore, is they said, Oh, it's just a localized temporary reaction because of the scarring and, and placing of the eShore device. I said, No, it's a chronic problem too. Because as that implant degrades, oxidizes, the body responds ever so often to the change in that particular tissue structure. And if you think that it's just going to be associated with the scar tissue around it, you're wrong. It's going to be systemic. That's where you have an Asian, all of the different autoimmune, as well as all of the different foreign body reactions, very similar problems, hair loss, brain fog, memory losses, dementia, Alzheimer's symptoms. Of course, the rashes, systemic a nickel allergy syndrome, for example, the rashes, intestinal symptoms that mimic Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, irritable bowel syndrome.
0: I don't know if you've ever seen any of this, but I had a one centimeter pure inert titanium tendon anchor in my shoulder. Would you like to see what that pure inert tendon anchor looks like? Yeah. There's rust, and there's pitting, rust. there's corrosion.
1: Well, okay. If you put a piece of titanium or metal in water, of course, over time it will rust. People have that concept that just exposing it to the environment is going to rust it. Here's the other thing that happens. You put a metal like that in the body and your own immune system sends out the microphages and all of the immune fighting cells to try to degrade that piece of metal, Mm -hmm. treating it as if it was a biological agent, such as a virus or a bacterium, it tries to piecemeal it apart. And each time it causes that microscopic response to uh, to the metal, it changes it by a little bit. And therefore, you don't see over time. If you see there's pitting on that particular device right now, there's rusting on that particular device. That is not inert. That is not inert.
0: And would you like to know what the PA said when I went in for follow-up and showed it? And I, and I asked, I said, what does the doctor think of all the corrosion on that device? She looked at me and said, that's not corrosion. That was literally the response.
1: Well, again, I'm har- I'm hardest on my own specialty. We as doctors, PAs, nurse practitioners, okay, we shouldn't comment on something we have no knowledge of. That PA should have never said anything because that PA is not a metallurgic specialist. If a metallurgic specialist would have been in that room, they said, that is one of the stupidest things that I've ever heard. That's what that specialist would have said to that PA. Not being disrespectful, but if you don't know what you're talking about, don't give that information to a patient. Yeah. Okay.
0: And what are doctors taught in medical school about metal allergies and foreign They're body not. reactions?
1: <laughs> They're not. Okay. Well, there's a cascade effect that we're talking about biological agents. If you look at the drawings that we have to memorize and stuff like that, the, the concepts, we understand biological agents, viruses, bacteria, because we see that all the time. Over on the little tiny corner of this huge diagram, you'll see metal or poisons and stuff like that. We don't. Have any idea? Our experiences are viruses and bacteria. We understand that because we see them all the time. But we are clueless in the majority of cases that what is the response of the body to metals and similar products that are poisonous to the body in higher concentrations. That PA should have never said anything like that because he or she did not know what they were talking about.
0: So the problem gets into, they're not taught about it in medical school. So if they say anything at all, it's just really pretty much a CYA. They're just covering their butts.
1: Yeah. And you can have both. It's two sides of the same coin.
0: Okay. Why do you think it's a hard concept for doctors to grasp that systemic reactions to metals or foreign bodies can even happen? Why is that difficult?
1: That's on a number of levels of, like I said, ignorance, not wanting to take the time to read up and learn more. And the issues that the FDA approves something, it must be safe. That's a ridiculous concept in and of itself. And then the God complex that a patient is not going to walk into my office and then make a comment that I don't know anything about. I'm going to BS my way through that comment. Okay. And the only person that you're hurting is the patient who has paid you for an expert opinion on something that you're clueless about. So I can appreciate the frustration of so many patients when they walk in and they've done the research because it's affected them. They've spent the time to try to decipher all of this medical jargon to come up with something that they can understand. And when they understand it and they want to go in and talk to the doctor, that doctor's never picked up a book on foreign body reactions related to metals. They have it. And yet they think that they can BS or cover their butts on this particular concept, and they're just hurting the patient, the person that they've said they were going to help.
0: Got it. That's what's happening there. can you share some of the patient cases that you've dealt with regarding foreign body reactions? And if you've removed these clips, how things may or may not have resolved or some of your first patients, some of your memorable cases, sure, what's your um, experience, hands on.
1: Sure. I was first introduced to the East Shore Problems Forum on Facebook, and I was introduced to that group as a guest. At first, it was, hey, Dr. Navoa, do you mind joining in on a conversation related to eshore? Shore? I said, I've never placed East Shore. So what did I do? I went and started reading up on eShore. Shore. And I looked at the clinical data on eShore. And as soon as I read the clinical data, I said, I cannot believe that this product was placed on the market. How did it get past clinical trials? And that's, in a sense, the ineptness or the corruption of the FDA. FDA does some good things, but they don't have a spotless track record. And then many times they have been, I wouldn't call it a co-conspirator, but some of the people working for the FDA, you know, they're a good old club of people that know people. And some things have gotten through the FDA approval process that should have never been placed on the market. Each shore was one of those. Well,
0: I'm going to interject and say just for patients tuning in that may not know that as far as medical device manufacturing and Dr. Navoa, you can correct me if I'm incorrect here, but in the actual medical trials, many of the devices don't go through their own individual trials. They just have to show that they are similar enough to another product that was placed on the market and they're given a green light based on the success or you routine use of another implant, correct?
1: Not only do I agree with that comment, because it is factual, but let's take it a little bit further. You are allowed to use in your data analysis or your proposal for approval, you are allowed to use information on products that were accepted by the FDA, but later pulled from the market by the FDA, whether or not it's a reason associated wow. for what you're trying to get approval for or for some other reason. And many times the reason that the product is pulled off the market is you're asking for the same approval under the same circumstances, even though the product was pulled off the market. So that is another flaw. Yes, it's grandfathered in. There you That's go. That's crazy. Okay. There's let's on. go
0: back to the patient story. Sorry. I just wanted to interject that so people had a no, it's basis fine. there.
1: We can go around it's a track. Okay,
0: <laughs> yes, it's a track. Okay, Yeah, it's like a track. It
1: track. all it's all they're all related. Okay. You can go yes. off the tangent and you'll get right back on the okay, highway. Good. Okay. okay good. So we'll get thank back. you. So at first I looked at the comments placed on the Facebook forum about this particular issue or that particular issue. And I said, you know what? That's not unusual. We see that relatively common and i got some pushback from patients saying, well why are you on this forum if you're not agreeing with us i said well you're asking me for my opinion and i'm giving it to you i agree with some things i don't agree with other things and that just got me interested in doing a little bit more research again if you don't know what you're talking about look it up and start researching it because these people are trusting in your expertise and if you're not really aware of what that is open up a book or google it or whatever Or ask Alexis, she might be able to tell you. Alexa. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I ask her questions all the time. Nevertheless, within three to four days, I was seeing hundreds of patients with the same problems. I said, this is not coincidental anymore. Okay, there's something going on here. And then I did even more research. And then I started advocating for pulling this device off the market. So in talking about that, there were patients that were contacting me. And although I'm an advocate, I always really emphasize that a patient should go to their own doctor or to a doctor that's close to them. I was getting emails from all across the country as well as Europe and even as far as Australia and New Zealand. And I said, well, I can help you because I don't charge for any commentary that I place on Facebook or I have to I had to cut back on it, but they could send me emails and I would just respond and try to give them some factual information or advice. Of course, stressing that they should still go to their primary doctor for all their information. Nevertheless, I did have patients that come to me and said, hey, Dr. Naveau would you be willing to remove this device? I said, sure. If it meets criteria under your insurance, I will be glad to remove the device. Well, how will you remove it? I said, the only way that I'm going to remove it is I'm going to treat it as if it's a cancer. Okay, That's how you need to address it. Now, in the majority of cases, these were the top reasons why patients were complaining of a problem with that device. And let's mirror it to other problems with the Felschie clips, surgical clips, and the such brain okay. fog. Okay. Eshore, brain fog. Something that was placed in their uterus was causing them to have memory lapses, dementia symptoms, Alzheimer symptoms are can't add two and two together or can't remember what they did yesterday, that's brain fog, the edre- uh, the memory issues. You ask any, and now they've learned a little bit more. Back in the day when this was a real problem, when Eshaw was on the market, that gynecologist was going to think that you're crazy or actually think that there was something mentally wrong with you and send you with a referral to see the psychiatrist for depression, okay? Mm-hmm. Wasn't putting two and two together. All right. Now, next on EShore, brain fog number one, depression. If you suffer from pain or the destruction of your personal relationships with your friends, your family, your loved one, the person that you care about so much, and it's destroying your marriage, don't you think that's going to cause depression? Of course it is. Okay. So depression was another symptom or a problem. Again, cognitive problems, but the gynecologist knows nothing about that. Okay. Well, let's move on down the track. Rashes. Rashes. E shore nickel sensitivity because it's composed titanium and nickel. E shore sensitivity, nickel response. One of the dumbest, again, I, I try to be sensitive about it, but one of the dumbest things that manufacturers and scientists have done is trying to work with nickel, which has a 17% allergic sensitivity across the world. They use that as a part of a device that was going to be kept in the body permanently. Where's the common sense in that, nevertheless? Right. They did, okay, So the nickel rash, which leads you to systemic nickel allergy syndrome, GI symptoms, as well as the rash. And your gynecologist is not well, going to be able to- Well, and I have pain. The, it's exactly. chronic
0: pain head to toe. It's yeah. not just a rash.
1: Well, exactly. So then we talk about the intestinal symptoms and you move on down to the track. You have chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, and then you're moving on down into the pelvis. Then you have the pain. Pain is the most common side effect or symptom related to a foreign body. If the surgical clip is on your lymph node from your breast biopsy, it's gonna cause pain. In your axilla. If you have a surgical clip that's been removed, it's associated with your gallbladder having been removed. The most common symptom or complication is going to be pain where your gallbladder used to be or in the center of your chest. If you have a surgical clip placed on your fallopian tube or a felshi clip placed on your fallopian tube, it's going to cause pain. And esure, for example, caused pain because it was not only in the fallopian tube, but it was in the uterus. So this patient suffered from abnormal uterine bleeding, chronic pelvic pain because the body tries to expel the clip. As it can for gallbladder, you may have gallbladder spasm associated with a clip in the gallbladder area, in the general area where it used to be. So, these are the symptoms related to that. So you have acute, localized, as well as chronic, systemic. So, a patient would come to me and I said, i will take it out, write down all the symptoms that they have. 80% of the time, when we removed everything, these patients showed significant improvement or complete resolution of their symptoms within three months. When it had to do with brain fog, about 70 to 80% of these patients noted that the brain fog was disappearing within hours of the foreign body, the metal being removed. So it was like night and day. I had one patient that had four seizures before she had her Eshore removed. And the neurologist and her gynecologist and her psychiatrist couldn't figure out what's this seizure issue going on. They're putting on all this medicine. It wasn't helping. We remove it's the interesting. E-shirt. It's
0: interesting you say that I've got a really close family friend who had a spinal fusion, no prior history of seizures and all of a sudden is having seizures all the time and nobody is making the connection. I've tried to get them to listen to me, but I wasn't aware yeah. of a lot of incidents of seizures.
1: Yes. Well, seizure is common because here, again, we as doctors don't understand that the lymphatic system of the body is connected to the brain. At one time, we thought that the blood-brain barrier protected against these immune responses to the brain. That's not true. It does get through the blood-brain barrier. And that's the reason why they have the cognitive changes of the brain fog and the seizures. We removed the issue device, no more seizures. If we're talking about spinal fusion as well as orthopedic devices that are placed. If you read up on the latest literature related to that on the cobalt sensitivity or the cobalt oxidation and uh, breakdown of those older style metal implants, basically the cobalt ions were getting through. And it was causing cobalt poisoning. And the patient was having these uh, cognitive changes and these seizures. One of the best movies or documentaries, I think, is The Bleeding Edge, for example. That's a great crossover of the different issues as well as the East Shore. The symptoms that these patients are showing, especially with orthopedic implants, is that they're going to have cognitive changes in many cases will start suffering from seizures.
0: Mm. Wish I could get them to listen.
1: (laughs) I have a colleague, Schroeder. Who is excellent? He's retired. Dr. Scott? Uh huh. We've talked and we've had Zoom meetings. He is the expert. His distinguished record and the things that he does on a humanitarian level are outstanding. He has a lot more background and understanding on a cellular level of what's going on here. And not only that, he actually travels the world to talk to other experts. He's amazing. So, what we started advocating for is this. At that time, we were saying remove the East Shore if the patients are having symptoms. But now we're more than 10 years out for the majority of women that have e Shore. And yet they're now starting to show the symptoms of the oxidation and the changes to the e Shore metal, as well as the PET fibers associated with it. My recommendation now is when you can, and if it's safe to do, get the device taken out. And that's a change that if it's not causing you any problems go ahead and have it taken out. It's now, if you can have it taken out, take it out before you develop the problems because in a significant number of patients, even after you remove Eshore, the damage has been done and we're trying to prevent long-term problems
0: one of my dear, dear friends and neighbors has Isher in right now, and mm-hmm. she isn't having any symptoms from it that she knows about. We've talked about it. She's very progressive with her health and very aware of the complications that can happen. But I think her position is, I'm not going to have it taken out because it's not causing any problems. And this surgeon is out of network and it's going to cost me ten grand, and I don't have that kind of money. And I'm like, I'd get that out of there yesterday because you don't mm-hmm. know what you don't know. Well, if
1: you were able to sit in the meetings, and they have them recorded, the video recordings of East Shore, when it went before the committee for FDA, we all know that we don't know what the long-term effects are of the devices. And yet there's enough women that are getting these devices removed on a daily basis to understand that it's a time bomb on a time scale for some women that they will develop these problems, not right now maybe, but as it degrades mm-hmm. another two years, another five years. Who's to right. say? I don't know very many people that are not concerned about that. And maybe she's yeah. not, but it may come to the point where she does have a problem. And she said, no, oh, I should have gotten it out when I had a chance.
0: Right. So going back to the patient stories, you've seen significant resolution of these symptoms with the removal of Esure. And would you say that expands to Clips and Staples Absolutely. and orthopedic hardware and all the Absolutely. removals? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. If you can remove everything, you're going to have the best outcome, obviously. And I understand that you can't necessarily remove everything. Sometimes you can't. But if you can remove as much as you can, the patients do start to show improvement. Here's the problem. Those that show improvement and have had everything taken out, generally, it's a done deal. They're they're finished with a good outcome. And there's going to be a group that say, hey, I noticed some great changes to my life. It improved so much for about three to four months. And then the symptoms came back. What is that all about? I said, get yourself scanned again, find out how much is still left. Oh, they took it all out, but they get the x-ray or they get the CT scan or the MRI. And there's some bits and pieces still left behind. I said, that's the concern there because they weren't able to take it all out. And especially for patients that have had surgical clips removed, sometimes doctors use surgical clips because it's an easy way to cause a ligation, to stop a bleeder. But Mm -hmm. we weren't told that the more surgical clips you place in, the more likely it is for the patient to have a foreign body reaction. So they're putting in 5, 10, 15 surgical clips, and they're calling it a day. But unless you take out all 15, the patient may still suffer from just one being left behind. They may feel better because they took out 14, But that one little surgical clip is enough to cause the problems. And then it's always this concept with doctors that said, oh, well, if you had shrapnel, we've done all these studies on the military with shrapnels left behind and the patients do okay. No, they don't because there's no long-term evaluation of foreign body reaction with shrapnel victims. That's what's going on there
0: take a minute because it'll fuel our conversation. This isn't going to be something you don't already know, but I'm going to read you just an email I got from a patient yesterday. She said she had just one breast marker from a biopsy and was having all kinds of symptoms. And they said, oh, it can't be the breast marker and had it removed. She emails me back and she said, I'm just now realizing I had knee pain. I've always been heavy, but never had joint pain like that. Thumb pain, weird things, There are so many things that just disappear. You didn't even know they existed until they don't. The more time passes, the more I realize what was real, but had a cause. It's like I've been gaslit by my own body. Wow. I would have one good day, then seven bad days. Feel like I was getting better that one day. Thank you so much for what you do. You literally are saving my life. It's whack-a-mole with all the different things. And people don't even know they're having them related to the hardware until they're taken out and they resolve.
1: Here's one for you. And again, and I think it's a conflict of interest for doctors to do this, but it's a part of the subspecialty of cosmetic surgery. Unfortunately, women suffer from breast cancer. And one of the managements of breast cancer is to take a biopsy. And of course, when they do a biopsy, they'll leave a marker or they'll actually clip, using a surgical clip, a bleeder or something. Mm-hmm. So now they've removed this. Maybe it's actually benign, but maybe it is cancer. They remove this mass out. If it's benign, nothing else is done. Quote, unquote, the patient is supposed to do better. But then a year from then, or maybe just with a few weeks, the patient is having pain where they did the biopsy. And every time they complain to their doctor, the doctor says, oh, it's just related to scar tissue, or it's just related to the fact that we took the tumor out. That's what you're going to have. And it may be chronic for the rest of your life. But then for whatever reason, they get that clip taken out and their lymph nodes are no longer inflamed. There's no more sensitivity to that breast. Said so it was the marker, but nobody's going to take the time to write a report on it and say, hey, are we doing wrong to the patient by leaving surgical clips in related to breast biopsies? That's number one.
0: And now a word from our sponsor Attention Metal Heads. Are you struggling with skin rashes, joint and systemic pain, or fatigue that just won't go away? Type 4 metal allergy is often overlooked as a culprit in many of today's chronic illnesses. Get to the root of the problem with Melisa testing. Melisa is a scientifically proven and clinically validated test that measures immune reactivity to metal allergens like nickel, cobalt, and titanium. With fast and reliable results, you can get the answers you need to find relief and live a healthier life. Don't let metal allergies control your life any longer. Visit Meliza.org to learn more and schedule your test. Trust us, you'll be glad you did. Meliza a valuable diagnostic tool in medicine. I just had another patient email me. She had breast cancer. She had the excision of one breast. She left one of them and had clips at the lymph node, three surgical Mm -hmm. clips, and she had them in the imaging. And she addressed them. She thought plastic clips, like chip clips. She didn't even think metal. She's emailing Mm -hmm. me because she has drainage at the sites of Mm -hmm. both of these clips. And literally... She just saw one of my posts on Facebook and this isn't about me. This is about the patients, but literally now she's going to be going and getting these clips removed. And it sounds like that these six clips, three in each breast and doctors just told it the same thing. It's scar tissue. It's just surgery. It's just something you're going to have to live with. And she said, I'm so glad that I knew it was this because I would have thought it was cancer. I would have thought it was something not related. And this has a very simple explanation that can be resolved.
1: Absolutely. But let's look at it on a cellular level. Okay. You leave a clip behind. The body is going to form scar tissue around that clip. And as that clip degrades over time, oxidizes over time, all of the immune cells are trying to break that down. And therefore, it's like when somebody hits you in the arm and it's a bruise. Okay. The body response to that is try to cure it, get rid of all the bad things related to it. The scar tissue itself is the response to the foreign body reaction. And unless you get that clip removed, some patients suffer. So they're right in the sense that, oh, it is the scar tissue, but why is the scar tissue so inflamed? Why is it so bad? Why is the area so hard? It's the clip that you left behind and doctors can't put two and two together on that.
0: And why not? Why can't they put two and two together? I mean, you can.
1: Yeah. Well, again, it's just a matter of the God complex. (laughs) A surgeon cannot for a moment fanta that someone is telling them something that they don't already know, but they will not take the time to read up on what could be causing this. Someone will finally take the time to start doing a case series of these particular clips in the breast tissue. And then maybe it will change things. But that's number one. That's how they ended up changing the orthopedic implants, change it over from cobalt because someone took the time to start showing from the brain scans of how things were changing associated with the cobalt degradation, the oxidation of the cobalt. Let's go back to breast cancer patients. So the patient does have breast cancer. So she has their breast removed. And then she goes to her plastic surgeon and says, Hey, listen, I don't have my breast anymore. Can we have reconstructive surgery? oh sure, let's put breast implants in without telling the patient That she has a 30% chance that she's going to have a complication to the breast implants because the foreign body reaction in this particular scenario is hypersensitized to the fact that you removed healthy tissue and put an implant in there. Now, these patients are going to have a 30% chance that those implants are going to encapsulate something called a capsular contracture. That is a foreign body reaction. The capsular contracture is an exaggeration of the response because of the implant itself. And then the patient has to have another surgery to remove the encapsulated implants. And that is also associated with breast implant illness. So these poor suffering women that have had breast cancer have a 30% chance of needing to have another complicated surgery because they were not properly informed of the complications associated with breast implants following mastectomy.
0: So better That's to just take it off and leave it off.
1: Yeah. Or try something different like a fat, transfer. But at least properly inform your patient that she has a 30% chance that she will need another surgery. And many times a woman will say, love me for who I am and not for how I look. I'm not going to get breast implants if there's a 30% chance that I'm going to have to have multiple surgeries. There's metals in the
0: breast implants.
1: Yes. And they can leach into the capsule and pass the capsule and cause, again, the foreign body reaction, which is part of BII, the breast implant illness.
0: I know you're big on this. Let's talk about informed consent and let's talk about Mm -hmm. lawsuits and let's go into some of this stuff that I know you're really hot about. And before we do that, I will tell you that I just literally two weeks ago had a post go viral online and it was just a simple short form video. These routine surgeries can leave clips and staples in without your knowledge. And it was, you know, colonoscopy and an appendectomy and cholecystectomy and just the things we know about. And it must have gotten onto some kind of medical provider. Facebook or online group, because it went to almost a million people. I had probably a thousand comments from medical professionals that were like, patients aren't reading the consent and know that we're placing these clips. And anytime a clip is placed, we give them a card and it tells what was placed and blah, 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 blah. And they always know. And it was a huge amount of backlash toward patients from providers, which I haven't seen on a post before.
1: I call BS on that again, okay? If that's what you're saying, black out the name of a patient and post the general information of the consent that you're getting from that patient related to the clip. And you're going to see those 1,000 people not respond to you. If I'm going to make a comment, I'm going to back it up. And I know that there's a HIPAA issue, but it's a standardized form. It's not like it was written just for that patient. So look at the standardized form for informed consent. And if it says surgical clip, what other paragraph underneath of it is talking about the complications associated with leaving surgical clips in place? You're not going to see that. So I call BS on those doctors, and they know better. They're just trying to cover themselves now or feel offended. That so they're it on the patient. To, the patient
0: had versed uh, and can't remember. Yeah, there's yeah, a, you know, there's uh, the amnesia yeah. effect, and they didn't read through the consent and they didn't tell us about their allergies, and they're throwing it all back on the patient.
1: And again, it's the doctors, it's the medical field, it's not the patient. Part of our job is to make sure that the patient knows what we're talking about. That's what I do on the pre ops. When I do a surgery on a patient, I have them come in two weeks before the surgery. And we sit down again and we go over everything that's expected. That's the pre-op appointment. On the day of surgery, I go in there and I sit down with them again and I go over the informed consent and I answer their questions and I say, listen, if for a moment you're not comfortable with what I just told you, we will postpone the surgery until you are. And if you need a second opinion, you let me know right now. And I will cancel the surgery and you can get your second opinion. Do you know how many doctors would be super pissed off if a patient at the last moment said, hey, I'm not comfortable with what you just told me. I would like to get a second opinion. There are many, many thousands, literally, doctors. If you ask them for a second opinion, they will drop you as a patient. I call BS on these informed consent forms because they're not properly written And anybody that comments like that and says that they have given this information to the patient, I said, go right ahead, pull that chart, black out all the important areas, post it now, and I will apologize if I'm wrong about what you said about the clips. That's how you shut them up. I hate to say it that way.
0: Here's the thing. Let's just say Mm -hmm. the patient does have a little amnesia from the Versed that they're given prior to surgery. And let's just say that they don't read their consent. And let's just say they don't think, oh, I've had a jewelry allergy. I should probably tell the doctors that that's a true allergy. The problem is if they don't know ahead of time that the clip could be placed and hospitals and medical facilities aren't saying, hey, have you had a prior reaction to metal or jewelry? If they don't know that these hypersensitivity reactions can occur, it still comes back to It takes a village. It's doctors aren't perfect and patients aren't perfect. Why can't we all work together for better knowledge of side effects, better informed consent, better consent forms? And why can't hospitals and doctor's offices put on their form? Have you ever had a metal hypersensitivity reaction? Why?
1: Because they haven't taken the time to think about that as a possibility. That's number one. Number two is that these informed consents are usually last minute. It's just before surgery. It's not, hey, and I do this for my patients. Here, we're going to send you the PDF file. I want you to take the time, days if necessary, to review this informed consent and get back to me on that. Not at the last minute because, yes, first of all, a patient goes to the hospital and they're worried many times, is the the surgery going to go bad? And Am I going to die? There's so much anxiety related to going to the hospital and having a surgery, number one. Now, two, when you're there, if they have given you something, even if you've taken something to calm your nerves, you can have antigrade and retrograde amnesia. You may not remember what anybody said. And many times that's why I, I talked to a patient. I said, I'm going to tell you this right now, and we're going to talk about it after the surgery, because it's a high possibility you don't remember anything that I that we're talking about right now. So it is not on the patient. To to read the mind of the doctor, it is the doctor's obligation to make sure that they've covered it, not on a doctor level, but on a normal high school level, or if necessary, below a high school level, so that that person can repeat back to you what you told them about their surgery. I opened in the question. I said, can you tell me what questions you have about what I just said? And can you explain to me what it is that we're going to do? And if they can't, okay, let's take a little bit more time about this. Many doctors, they walk in and walk out. It's a two-minute, oh, do you have any questions? Oh, no, you sign your forms? Oh, okay, well, uh, I'll see you afterwards, or I'll talk to your family afterwards. That's how short it is. Even if the patient doesn't tell them, the question comes from the doctor, do you have any mental allergies? And in doing this surgery, I may use a clip. Where in the consent form does it say that? And you're going to... I can assure you that 99 out of 100 times, it's not going to say we may be using surgical clips in this procedure. And these are the complications associated with it. But
0: as I understand it, it can be rolled into the verbiage standard of care. If standard of care includes using a clip, what can patients do when going into a surgery to make sure that they opt out of foreign body implantation?
1: It's not their fault. And they are not the ones that are supposed to read the mind of a doctor. What is the standard of care? The patient doesn't know how to do the surgery. The patient doesn't know any of that. The standard of care is the obligation of the doctor to communicate to the patient what's going to be happening on a level that they can understand. That is the standard of care. Okay, I see this all the time with these surgical clips. When you're talking about Felshie clips and tubal ligation, like what we talked at the beginning, tubal ligation is a, is a broad term. Ligation of the fallopian tube. You can ligate the fallopian tube in a variety of ways. You can cut the tube. You can burn the tube. You can tie the tube. You can uh, remove the entire tube. You can put um, a, a clip on the tube, the Felshie clip or the Holker clip. You can put e short. In the tube. Okay. All of those fall under a broad category of ligation. But each one of those procedures has a potential complication associated with it that cannot be generalized because it's very specific. Eshore had its mm-hmm. own complications. Felshe clips. What's the most common complication related to Felshe clip besides the foreign body reaction? Falling off the tube. Okay. Does it say in the informed consent? in your ligation that a felshi clip will be used nine times out of 10? No. does it say in the informed cassette that your felshi clip may fall off in one out of five times? It doesn't say that. Patients are surprised when they find out that two felshi clips have been placed on each fallopian tube at separate portions of the fallopian tube on purpose by the doctor. Why is that? Because we know one of the Felshe clips is going to fall off one out of five times. So we're going to put two clips on. I'm not, but there are doctors that still, Felshe clip is very popular. What happens to the one that falls off? The foreign body reaction as it's moving around the intestines, scar in place. Or that inflammatory reaction that keeps messing up your intestines because it keeps moving, foreign body reaction.
0: Or my favorite. Well, anoscopy. where they remove a polyp in the colon, they put a clip and say, oh, it's going to be flushed out in the next few days by the body. That doesn't always happen.
1: No, they don't understand it. Sometimes it erodes through the opposite direction and can perforate the colon itself or cause a granuloma effect or an inflammatory response that, that may stop up your intestine until it's removed there's so many that's just clips we can talk about mesh any material any biological implant can cause all the very similar problems because the body responds similarly to each one of these as a foreign body that's nature and evolution that's how it works don't get me started on like unnecessary cesarean sections tubal ligation issues how we're placing these meshes wrong and of course placing surgical clips How many times does a surgical clip that's placed also fall off? We literally are putting these clips in during surgery and we clamp something and the darn thing falls right off. Sometimes they're looking for it, like trying to find it. Where did it go? They say, oh, it's all fine. They don't realize that later another clip fell off and is floating around somewhere or at an angle that's hitting a nerve or hitting tissue that's sensitive. And that's permanent. It won't move now. It's scarred in place. We just don't have common sense sometimes as doctors. Why are we using surgical clips? Because the majority of doctors are inferiorly trained and they don't know how to tie a knot anymore. So they use a clip in order to do it quickly. So they can only take two seconds to put a clip on or a minute to tie a knot. Doctors literally would like to save five minutes of their time rather than tie a knot. And doctors don't know how to tie knots anymore. It's all cauterization with a harmonic scalpel, for example, or... They're going to use a clip. That's what we're talking about there.
0: So what can a patient do so that a foreign body isn't implanted during surgery? How would you suggest Mm -hmm. a patient handle that Mm -hmm. if part of it has to be on the patient because we can't rely on the doctors?
1: Here's where you're going to have a conflict because the ego complex, the God complex of many doctors is this. If you present a form, and maybe you should wait right up until the time of surgery, you bring a form to your doctor, your informed consent. This is your informed consent, giving the information to the doctor. My informed consent is you will not use any biological implant that's permanent in my body when you're doing this surgery. This is to include surgical clips. Please sign this, doctor. Then you're not going to use a clip.
0: Would a doctor sign that?
1: No. No. But if you're going to give me an informed consent to sign, I want you to sign informed consent because I'm not the one that's operating on you. You're operating on me, and I'm going to tell you that this is what's acceptable to me. Okay, so we have to change the system. Okay? Yeah. We have to change the system. I can assure you that, that a doctor would probably not want to cancel a surgery because it's, again, the business concept. They're not going to want to lose out on the time slot. And if it means that I got a tie knot, okay, fine, you win. I'll tie the knot rather than use a clip. But But
0: if a doctor's not going to sign that, what can the patient do?
1: Reschedule with somebody that will. I don't have an answer that will be the umbrella for all answers. Mm -hmm. I can tell you if patients start to do more pushback, stand up for their rights, stand up for, for what is right, the standard of care will then change. The standard of care is the way A normal, competent doctor would act in the same situation. But the moment that a doctor starts being questioned about what they're doing, they're more likely to do what's right rather than what's the standard of care. Okay? We Mm -hmm. as doctors decide what the standard of care is. It's not the patient. We as doctors Mm -hmm. decide what that is. And therefore, the pushback is you need to change this because it's affecting us in this manner. Okay, well, then the new standard of care is I will get an informed consent related to surgical clips. That's the new standard of care. This is the terrible thing about medical malpractice lawsuits is that they do fall back on the standard of care. If the standard of care is flawed, then to win a lawsuit is difficult, even though the standard of care is flawed. So in order to change that, you have to change the standard of care. But I always tell patients the, the, the concept of coalition of, in order to change the standard of care, you only have to get one law firm that's going to get paid. I mean, because a lot of the times these law firms say, I'm not going to take this case on contingency because there's a good chance that I'm not going to get paid. Well, then you're going to get paid. It's not going to be contingency. We're getting a group together and you'll get paid on an hourly rate. But take this case to court and let's go from there. If you have 12 jurors and they're told that this form of uh, this informed consent did not say anything about clips, you didn't get the consent from the patient and you lose. Okay. The hurdle is getting the law firm to represent and that they're going to get paid because there's plenty of experts that will pretty much sign off on anything. So it's not that you can't get an expert that will take this case to court. I mean, that will be your expert because there are professionals that do this for a living and they will, if it makes sense, they'll say, okay, that's possible or yeah, that's probable. So that's not the part. It's the part that the attorneys don't want to take a case where it's on contingency and that they may end up losing and then they wasted their time. So there has to be a coalition that says, this is the first case. We're going to change the standard of care.
0: And not only that, though, you brought up in one of your videos, any group of patients that wants to take the time to sue and change the standard of care cannot expect to be made whole for their suffering. This is basically a procedure that is done on principle only to change a system. It is not something that you're going to get rich, retire on, live in comfort the rest of your life for because you will never get made whole. They may give you a token payment just to settle their books. But this is something that you do not because you want to gain anything other than to change the standard of care for patients going forward, correct?
1: Absolutely. You have to be politically correct in a lot of things that you see, but I'm just going to put it out there. It is like sexual assault, okay? There is very few times that a person will truly recover from that act. But many people come forward not because they want to get something back from it, but they want to prevent it from happening to someone else. That yeah. is where they feel that they could give something back or prevent something from happening. I know it happened to me. I'm never going to be made whole again, but I want to stop that person. I want to stop that doctor. I want to stop that hospital from doing that to anyone else. And that is what we're talking about in this regard. Yes, there are many, many women related to Isha, for example, or the Mesh that are saying, well, I'm part of this lawsuit and I'm expected to get money out of it. And then they're just shocked when they get 10 cents on the dollar or one cent on the dollar as compensation for 10 years of suffering. The system is rigged not to punish and correct, but simply to take your losses and move on from there on the side of the corporation, on the side of the doctor, the lawyers understand that, and this is what bothers me a lot of times about these big cases, these class actions and these tort lawsuits. Mm -hmm. If you meet the basic criteria to be included into the lawsuit, there are lawyers that welcome, welcome by the hundreds, by the thousands of these patients, not because they're hoping that they're going to be able to get something for their clients, but because the more names that they have on a list, the more Mm -hmm. power that they have to get paid at the end of the day. So for Eshore and Roundup, the lawyers got involved and they're going to get 40 to 50% compensation and maybe even more depending on how they're documenting their invoices. Mm -hmm. They want all of those names because they can pressure the companies to settle because they have the names, not that they're representing one person with a really good case. They're representing a thousand people with a, eh, maybe just put your name on the list. That's why they're always advertising about it. They're they're always going to get a piece of the pie. Or law firms advertise that just call this 1-800 number, and they get a portion because of the referral. And at the end of the day, one law firm gets a referral from another law firm. And they remember them, and when it gets time to get paid, they end up getting paid for the referral. So the system is corrupted, and the only way that you can fix the system is not expect a huge change, but one step at a time and something that's reasonable. And if it's stacked against you, then find that little weakness, find that thing that you can plant your flag on, and then go from there.
0: Well, and you That's have brought happens. up the one thing patients can do until we can get a group together or get attorneys to go after and change the standard of care. You can write a review for the doctor. You can leave a review mm-hmm. in a public place and you can share your story. And if enough people share your story, then maybe the doctor cares enough to change how they practice, how they consent, how they screen. Here's what's so
1: important about writing reviews. I've had bad reviews written about me, about my office, my office staff. I mean, you take it as a learning, what can we do to make it better? That's how I take it. I try to take it positively. But you can't please everyone, and there's going to be circumstances where something happens, and you just try to do better. That's what you try to do. You try to do better. But here's the deal. If you write a commentary in a public forum, it has to be truthful and as objective as you can be. Have someone else read it. Don't say that the doctor was trying to kill you. Don't say that the doctor does drugs or was high or whatever on alcohol. Don't write things that are subjective. Stick to the facts that I was supposed to have the surgery done and I didn't get proper informed consent. I looked over my medical records. It doesn't say anything about surgical clips. And had I known that they were going to use surgical clips, I wouldn't ever allow them to operate on me. That's factual. So now what does the doctors do? Because I've heard stories where, well, the doctor's going to end up suing the patient. Most likely than not, the doctor's going to sue the patient because of some commentary that went overboard, that went too far. And it's not objective information. It is subjective commentary that is defamatory. Stick to the facts, have some people read it. And then, okay, so what happens if the doctor does want to sue you? Well, you have a legitimate complaint send it to their medical boards. Now the medical board gets involved. So these doctors will less likely chance that they're going to try to sue you if they understand that there are also repercussions for honesty. If you're trying to pressure a patient because they were honest about something, you're just as liable for that as well.
0: I can't even imagine that that honestly would be a concern. I can't think that a doctor would take the time unless somebody just completely flamed their character. The doctor I went to that told me I couldn't have a metal allergy was an internal medicine doctor, fellowship trained in immunology, allergy, and rheumatology. And she told me I couldn't have a metal allergy. I didn't have the symptoms. She wouldn't sign the consent. Fine. She did sign the consent for the test. I did come back allergic to nickel. I went on, moved on from her. Can't teach an old dog new tricks. Went down the road, got better, and I did go back and leave a review, but if but it's like you say, I didn't call her, you know, I didn't call her a female dog. I didn't say anything that would mm-hmm. inflame her. I just said she did not tell me, you know, she her opinion was that I didn't have this metal allergy. I did. I went and got this treatment. I got better. You can't sue somebody over their personal experience. I I mean, yeah. I guess you can. People can sue anybody for anything, but that would be a waste of time. And I just can't imagine a doctor would waste that much time.
1: I have some leaders that have their own groups and the forums are on Facebook. And I've been asked to write letters that someone could present To the emergency room and is actually posted. And I try to change one. And I haven't had the time to fix it again, but it was a constructive uh, criticism. It says, Dr. Navo, you put in there that they should go ahead and see an immunologist or rheumatologist. And these immunologists and rheumatologists and allergists are just as clueless as every other doctor related to what's going on with with my symptoms. I don't know whether or not that's a good idea. And I said, you know what? Absolutely. But at least you can try to get them to understand. The truly gifted doctors that understand the foreign body reaction are actually not medical doctors. They are PhDs that study all of these things on a cellular level in a laboratory or a lab. The PhDs understand foreign body reaction better than anybody. Okay, so I take it like building a house. We as general doctors outside of the specialty of immunology, rheumatology, and allergy are just the handyman. Okay. These subspecialties are basically the foreman of a construction site. But the true doctors that know about this stuff are the engineers and the people that create the diagrams and everything else on how to build a house. Okay.
0: Yes.
1: Unfortunately, those PhDs are not MDs and therefore you're going to the, the wrong type of doctor. <laughs> and that's the problem that we have here.
0: PhD can't and, remove hardware.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I understand where you're frustrated that you went to the immunologist or you went to the rheumatologist or the allergist. And they, first of all, they don't know about Asia syndrome. They never heard about it. They don't know what it is. Or if they say they know a little bit about it, they don't believe in it. And it's because they are not the real doctors that understand it. If you just pull back for a moment and understand what Asia really is, do you know how we got so much information about it? Actually doing animal studies, they've done it on sheep and they can demonstrate Asia effect in sheep for vaccinations, for example, and the effects of aluminum, and they can extrapolate that information. It is unethical to do the same type of things to human beings, but you can prove Asia in animal studies. Again, they haven't matched up one doctor talking to another about it. And I don't know when it's going to happen, but eventually it will, just like science. We're still using leeches as far as, as we're concerned as knowledge base that we have as doctors related to the immune response. Hopefully we'll be like doctors in Star Trek and stuff like that. But we're uh,
0: We're decades away from Quantum healing. Yeah. Exactly. Where do patients go go to learn about Asia syndrome?
1: I've actually downloaded papers that have been printed from the National Institutes of Health related to Asia. And if you put foreign body reaction and you type out Asia, those papers, and and they're written in abstract. So it it doesn't get really technical, but they, they tell you what it's about, what they did, and what were their conclusions? And those abstracts are only two paragraphs. Now, if you want to really go in depth, of course, you can read the entire article. But to me, that's the Reader Digest portion of exactly what they were trying to show and what they did show. And that's basically, in general terms, one of the best ways to understand Asia is just to Google it because it's free. Just Google Asia and it, comma sheep. And you may read the story that I was just talking about.
0: her Facebook group? Or an online community that has support for Asia or?
1: Not that I'm aware of. I haven't seen one specifically that you type in Asia. You'd yeah. have to type it out or parentheses because there are Asia groups, but they're actually talking about the continent and not the syndrome. You know, right? Kind
0: of... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe there needs to be an Asia syndrome support group. I guess we're getting close to needing to wrap up, but what have we not covered that you really, really want to get out there?
1: here's where it gets tricky and I keep emphasizing is to never be afraid to get a second opinion. If your doctor pushes back on you or gets insulted because you've asked for a second opinion, that's not really somebody that you want to deal with because when the going gets tough, they're the ones that are going to be blaming you for everything. That's not the type of doctor that you really want taking care Mm -hmm. of you. I see it all the time and I know that whittles down the group of people that you can actually go to, but we also have to change our mentality and how we act towards our patients. And if you want a second opinion, I'm going to get you a second Opinion, I have no problem with that. You're not insulting me by trying to get more information. Maybe I didn't explain it well enough to you. Maybe you feel more comfortable with someone else giving you that information or going more in depth with it. I consider myself to be a good storyteller, but maybe I'm not. And just because I'm going to be the surgeon that's going to do the surgery doesn't necessarily mean I'm the one that's going to get the informed consent or convince you that that's your best option. I can tell you that, yeah, it's like pulling teeth sometimes. You go to see your doctor and you ask for a second opinion and they discharge you because they consider that to be an insult or that you're a difficult patient. Yes. I just suggest, you know what? Maybe you still should do that because you're looking out for your best interest, your health. How do you turn back the clock when you have something done to you that's not? reversible it's permanent how many stories have you heard where they put in just a little clip and no one is willing to take it out let alone some type of spinal surgery or vertebral surgery without a permanent fused in plate or something that's causing you problems those things don't come out okay in mesh there's only a handful of true experts to remove mesh in the United States and yet tens of thousands of men and women have mesh related complications. You can't fix something sometimes or can't find anybody to do it. So it makes so much sense to just try to make sure that you're with the right doctor from the start.
0: Well, I mean, case in point, and actually I still probably would have proceeded. I've got three pelvic implants through my SI joints. They are less than Mm -hmm. one ten thousandth of one percent nickel. My surgeon is a great surgeon. I adore him. And we had the discussion prior to even having those implants placed, knowing that I had had prior jewelry reactions, but we didn't have the full systemic nickel allergy diagnosis yet. And he said, you know, that smaller percentage is not going to cause you any issue. It did. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. I cannot get those removed. Not the fault of my surgeon. He only knew what he knew, but I wish that surgeons knew that, Hey, if it's less than 1% nickel and you react to nickel, it could rock your whole world. And they don't know that.
1: Yeah, and extending that a little bit further, some people do develop a nickel allergy that wasn't diagnosed at the beginning as a cumulative effect of the nickel being in their body. So you may not have a nickel allergy. You may not have a titanium uh, allergy, but it develops over time. I say in response to your comment about your doctor, your doctor and you did everything that you could to come up with a plan that worked for you. And in many cases, that plan does not exist because doctors dismiss the request of information or proper information, or they're too much in a rush to go over it properly with the patient. I would rather postpone a surgery and the patient be properly informed than do a surgery and have her and me regret something that happened afterwards because she didn't know what was the real possibilities.
0: Yeah. And it's benefit versus risk. I still would have had that surgery prior to that surgery. I couldn't stand and I couldn't sit. I needed the surgery. But if the doctor would have said, hey, this is a list of reactions that could occur if you have a reaction to these implants and hey, there's nickel in food and it's this list of foods. If you have a reaction, if you have chronic pain, we're not going to be able to take out those implants. But what if you changed your diet? See if that helps you. And then we can get you to pain management and figure out a new plan if it doesn't. I mean, these are just the types of dialogues that need to happen. But how do we do it in the current system of medical care where the office visit pre-surgery is 15 minutes.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I understand that. Possible. And, and, and specifically for nickel allergy, I tell my patients all the time, well, I can't get these things removed. What, what can I do? I said, have you changed your diet? And they go, what do you mean? I said, do you like to eat chocolate? Oh yeah. I eat chocolate all the time. You, <laughs> you got to stop eating chocolate. What? What? <laughs> Soy. Okay. What? I like, I'm a vegetarian. I said, well, I don't know what Sorry. to tell you. There's a lot of nickel in a lot of vegetables, okay? Well, now you took away you my have chocolate, now you can took away eat my meat.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: you Took away my chocolate, now you took away my vegetables. What am I supposed to eat? I said, look down the list and see how much is there and see how you can come up with a diet that fits you. But the idea is that yes, diet can modify your response to nickel. Or that trigger, that adjuvant is an intestinal stimulation from nickel. But let's look at other types of them. You can have a cumulative effect of multiple types of implants that are placed in your body. If you have dental implants, okay, that's one. Maybe that's not the straw that broke the camel's back is in your situation. Sure. You've got dental implants placed. You've got breast implants placed. You have mesh placed. You have Eshore or placed. Each one of them can lead to a cumulative effect until one day you can't even get out of bed because your chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, and everything else. The key thing to understand is that maybe a line should be placed that stresses this. In doing the surgery, if you have a complication to the device that we're placing, we will not be able to remove the device. That might be a simple line that needs to be added because many patients think, oh, you put it in, then you can take it out. And they don't realize that they can't or a doctor won't. Maybe that's a stressor that we need to put there too.
0: Or spinal surgery. I have a fusion at L5S1. I had 13 pieces of hardware. The posterior hardware could come out. The anterior hardware cannot come out. It would have been nice to know when it was placed if you have a reaction in a year when the spine fuses, we can take these pieces out. We cannot take these pieces out. If you have trouble, come back and see us. That would have been amazing. I was bedridden for three years, couldn't walk five feet.
1: And you can see what happens after you remove it, you start to feel better. Basically, a lot of patients say, you know what, I had this done, I'm sending my old doctor a letter. Maybe, that, maybe he'll read it or she'll read it, maybe she won't, but at least she understands understand that she was wrong and maybe she'll understand that yeah. for the benefit of the next patient. But the key related to that is many patients feel that we're so skilled at putting these things in, it's gonna be relatively easy to remove it. And they're literally shocked to find out that the doctor that put in a felshi clip or a gallbladder could take out your gallbladder and leave a clip behind, but doesn't have the skill or the desire, ability, or intestinal fortitude to go back in there and take out that clip. A lot of patients would change doctors then. and said, if you put something in me, you got to be ready to take it out if I have a problem. That should be in the yeah. informed consent.
0: And thankfully, not everything that has to come out needs a surgery. How many patients do you see allergic to their IUD?
1: Mm-hmm. That's another one we didn't get in the yeah. subject of IUDs, but IUDs cause intracranial hypertension. They can cause blindness. Uh, people don't associate the foreign body reaction of an IUD when it's causing brain fog. An IUD can cause brain fog. The majority of GYNs don't know about it or don't believe in it. Luckily, yeah. IUDs can be removed, but they themselves can cause problems. Okay, They yeah. themselves can cause issues like that. Like I said, we could talk all week about... I know. Sub- do
0: I do want to know because I don't know. Do hysterectomies place clips? Hysterectomies, oophorectomies, salpingectomies. Do they usually use clips in those routinely or as the exception and not the rule?
1: They do use them routinely if they have a bleeder that they feel that would be quicker to control it with a clip. Even some of my colleagues, which are truly gifted GYN um, oncologists, for example. They run into a problem where it will take a little longer to tie it off, so they'll put a clip on it. And then the patient doesn't know that she had her hysterectomy and she's had two clips left behind until she gets an x-ray done. Another recommendation, because most patients don't understand that if they don't keep their medical records, they're going to eventually get destroyed. Always keep a copy of your medical records, especially um, any medical records from the hospital that have to do with surgery. Get your medical records Mm -hmm. and your surgery and read your Operative report to find out what happened during that surgery because most patients will be able to see and reading the operative report. Doctor, place clip here
0: if they they mention
1: it. That's true, too. But if they didn't mention it and there's a clip in there, that's a reason that they fell below the standard of care and you can do something about it. Another one is this if you have something taken out of your body, get a copy of the pathology report. There's plenty of patients that didn't know that the eShore was. intentionally or accidentally cut upon removal. So they have the bits and pieces of each shore left behind. They would have known that if they read the pathology report, or at least to confirm that the coils are in the tubes when they remove the tubes, and the only way you can get that information is from the pathology report. Another point is that if it's not in the operative report, and it's not in the pathology report, it never happened. Okay. It never happened. That's the point. I know plenty of patients that that I read their operative report and I said, well, did your doctor tell you this, 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 and this? No. Well, it's here. And the opposite. Well, my doctor told me this, but it's not there. I said, it needs to be in the operative report. Just like if you were in a courtroom and sonographers taking out all the information or it was recorded. That's another point about recording in the operating room. I think deliveries, for example, I think you should be allowed to record. Uh, But of course. That's my opinion compared to a lot of other people that don't allow that to happen.
0: <laughs> in wrapping up, you were just recently made a group expert in a Facebook group called Medical Device Problems. That's a really nice group where people could maybe partake of more of your wisdom. I know you've got a couple of pages. You're in the no E-Sure group. Where else can people find you? And do you do online consultations with A, doctors, and B, patients? Yes, I do both. For example,
1: the podcast is what I do without a charge half of my practice is pro bono. I wish that I could help everyone. I do accept patients to send me documents that I will be glad to review without a charge. I do consultations when I can without a charge. And sometimes I have to charge, especially if they have insurance. And I'm more than happy to talk to my colleagues. Just like uh, I spoke to Schoenfeld and Dr. Schroeder, They're my colleagues. I'm more than happy to talk to them about any questions that they have on the subject matter. Because, yes, I have seven years of experience, but I'm not the absolute expert. We can only Mm -hmm. learn from our experiences and be willing to share that information. So that's why I'm a consultant without a charge on eShore Problems Forum on the medical devices. I comment many times on Clips, post-tubal ligation, and the mesh groups. I think that's what I need to give back. I think that every doctor, if they gave back a little bit, we'd be in a much better place right now. But that's where the business comes in. Many doctors can't bill for their charity because it's charity, and they just choose not to do that.
0: How can a patient find you?
1: On my website, the email addresses for us are drnavoa.nms, which is Novoa Medical Services at gmail.com. That would be the, the general email address for patients to get in touch with us.
0: And the website for your clinic is www.drnavoa.com. Awesome. And he's got wonderful channels on uh, TikTok, Facebook. Are you on Instagram as well?
1: I try to be, but (laughs) I love to read TikTok. I watch TikTok. My wife always complains that I'm addicted to it. I don't have the persona, or at least feel comfortable, to do daily messages. Although I've been trying to change my own behavior in that uh, Perfect example is informed consent related to vaginal exams or pelvic exams, both men and women. But more than half of the states in the United States do not require by law that a patient be aware that they've been examined by someone other than their doctor under anesthesia. I think that it's appalling that we don't have a law in every single state that protects the rights of the patient to be aware that someone examined them while under anesthesia that wasn't their doctor. If it's educational purposes and whatever, that needs to be uh, spelled out that the patient gave informed consent ahead of time. That's number one for me. That's my next two or three minutes. Maybe it'll last 10 minutes, but that's what subject matter like that is what I'm trying to be more informative about in my, my presentations, but I don't have a lot of Instagram. I occasionally post on YouTube and I've been trying a little bit more on TikTok. I like to watch, but I'm not savvy and making all these videos.
0: Your stuff is fantastic and you do so much for the community. Nobody can complain. Now you probably don't know this is coming or maybe you do, but if you appear on the heavily metal podcast, you have to tell us your favorite heavy metal band and your favorite oh, heavy metal song.
1: It was Led Zeppelin. And I can't remember. Is it stairway to heaven? Is it, did they write that song? The, the or super long one?
0: Yes. Yes. Led yeah. Okay. Well, now we to in, heaven.
1: I actually like went, forever long. Um, yeah, I went to a concert and it was, Extraordinary. I like oh, to yeah. go to concerts, but this one just blew my mind when they were close to El Paso. And the Eagles, when they were an entire group before a couple of yes. other members passed away. But that's not heavy yes. metal. I consider Led Zeppelin heavy metal.
0: Led Zeppelin's heavy heavy yeah. metal. That counts. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page are amazing. So, I mean, Hart did The Kennedy so Center Awards. Honors. Oh, yeah, that was uh, amazing. I'm going to link to that video in the show yeah. notes. I don't go to many concerts anymore either. You know, I used to work in the 80s back with all the hair metal bands. But I saw Heart in Dallas at the House of Blues probably, I don't know, six, seven years ago, right before I got sick. I've seen Heart a lot of times. This was the best concert I've probably ever been to. It was incredible. Incredible.
1: They're amazing. You, you can tell just by the strength of their voice, that the talent that they have. And they can also play instruments, which is fantastic. They're multi-talented.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Navoa, for being willing to come on today. For those of you who don't know, every episode you can link to on heavily Metaled is with two L's. You can sign up for the email list and newsletter. There's a free next steps on your metal allergy tour bundle that comes with a symptom checklist and a roadmap of things that you can do to work through your metal allergies. We have a petition there on the website that I'm super excited about. Please go sign and share the petition. It is to advocate for implementing metal hypersensitivity screenings at doctor's offices, hospitals, and surgery centers worldwide. Everybody can get behind this. My vision is that tens of thousands of people will sign this petition. If you've had an experience with metal hypersensitivity, please Write an abbreviated comment. And eventually, we're going to make this petition available for people to print out, sign, and take to their facilities worldwide. So, super excited. Heavilymetal.com is where you can find the petition link and all that other information. For now, we're going to go ahead and close. We've got some exciting guests coming up in the future on the Heavily Metal podcast. And join us in our effort to tell the medical industry that we're not going to take it anymore. Anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Dr. (laughs) Namoa. Thank you for tuning in today. Please don't forget to follow me on social media and to like, share, and subscribe. My primary mission is reaching out to others who may be suffering from hypersensitivity reactions to metal implants and pointing them to resources that can assist with hope, help, and healing. If you know someone that suffers from a chronic illness, you might ask if they have any implanted metal hardware. And if they've ever had a reaction to jewelry or metals of any kind, might not even be on their radar. Visit us at heavilymetal.com, where you can find images and documentation relating to our show today, as well as a number of valuable resources and links to assist you on your own personal healing journey. Until next time, keep on rocking.